Our last session gave us important context for what is fast approaching in the Revelation. What we will be seeing prophesied in two weeks, session 47, both in the Revelation and in Zechariah, will be far easier to understand after our study of Daniel 11 last week. If you were not here last week, I implore you, I, I am on my knees begging you to obtain the notes and or listen to the audio of session 44, including the two charts we distributed, which are included in the PDF notes. Without that important information, you will be at a real disadvantage going forward. I can't take the time here to recapitulate all that. You'll need to do that on your own if you wish to understand the flow of the end-time narrative. Thank you, Scott. May your tribe increase. If this was a nightclub, I'd say, let's hear it for Scott. (laughs) But it's not. Last week we interrupted the narrative of the seven bowls of wrath in the Revelation, and this week and next we're going to do it again. Anywhere we stick this next parenthetical vision, it will be an interruption. And I prefer to address it now so that once we turn to Armageddon and Christ's return, then we can just keep going on that. Finally, the good news. And it's important that we address chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation, which portray Babylon the Great and her fall. Because this is a detailed portrait of the world system, both religious and political, under Antichrist and the false prophet during the tribulation. So yes, this session and next, session 45 and 46, will interrupt the flow. They, they will interrupt the chronology of the end times. They're set apart from that timeline. But we know already that the Revelation was not written, or better, revealed to John in chronological order. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 16 to where we left off when we were looking at the seven bowls. Were we to return to this text and narrative and that timeline, we would next begin with verse 12 of chapter 16, the pouring out of the sixth bowl. What follows immediately is a brief, shall we say, pseudo-parenthetical vision in verses 13 to 16, that nonetheless fits into the narrative for the run-up to Armageddon. So it's kind of a parenthetical vision, but it also is in line with the timeline. Then in verses 17 to 21, the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, followed by two chapters all about Babylon the Great. These Two chapters, along with the first six verses of chapter 19, are a true 
parenthetical vision, portraying the situation mostly earlier in the tribulation, earlier than the seventh bowl, sometime during the great tribulation, and perhaps even covering the most of the seven-year tribulation earlier in the first half. But also, right up to the last moment before Christ returns. Thus, there is some overlap with the last two bowls. So, we'll deal with this parenthetical vision now, rather than later. Let's begin with an overview. Chapter 17 is predominantly about the religious system under the beast and the false prophet. And chapter 18 is predominantly about the political or commercial system. Most of the commentators will say it's all, this is the political side. But when you read it, what stands out is trade, commerce, ships, goods. So it's not just political, it's commercial. Put another way, as MacArthur does, chapter 17 reveals the spiritual nature of Antichrist's kingdom. Chapter 18 follows with its material aspects. Both are presented under the names Babylon the Great or the Great Harlot. Even the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This Babylon is revealed to John in the figure of a woman. Interestingly, the vision is presented to John in the beginning by no less than one of the seven angels pouring out the bowls of wrath. So this one angel interrupts what he's doing with the bowls of wrath to show this to, to John. These chapters are all about the doom and downfall of Babylon. But in the process is included details about how their religious and political systems will operate during the tribulation. Now, beyond the need for us to study this simply because it's a component of the last things, we need to do due diligence and include it, that's enough, but one important reason for us to take the time for it is that in these chapters is revealed not just something future for this earth, but something happening right now. Now let me be clear. I am not at all suggesting that this prophecy is being fulfilled in our midst. Everyone in this room should know that we've covered much too much that has not occurred yet before this shows up. No, I'm not suggesting that, but declaring that the same abominable practices evil philosophies, the very same demonic ideas and practices of which we read here are a part of our system today. Whether this means that we are in the days leading to the rapture and tribulation or that society will cycle through a time of righteousness after this, that happens. We have good, we have bad, we have good, we have bad. Fashions come and go and then they come back again. It's just... It's the way things are. But, but whether 
either of those is the case, only God knows, of course. That isn't my point. My point is this. These chapters offer us a picture of a system locked into the worst level of demonic depravity. As such, it paints a pretty accurate picture of our world today. Finally, in these chapters, Babylon is presented as a woman, as a queen, and as a city. Scripture as well as history shows that Babylon, beginning with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, has always been an important center of false religion. Satan inaugurated false religion in the first days of this earth. And here we see him doing the same in its closing days. This final world religion, depicted as a harlot, is the theme of this vision, which records the exposure of the harlot, the explanation of the harlot, and the extermination of the harlot. Babylon here, in this chapter 17 context, is at root a metaphor for evil. The woman is described, or titled, depending on your translation, in verse 5 as a mystery, the Greek mysterion. It does not refer to a geographical region, not ancient Babylon, not necessarily a rebuilt Babylon, but a secret reality to be revealed in the end times. This Babylon is the symbol of all worldly resistance to God. This Babylon is the symbol of all worldly resistance to God. We begin with this being shown to John. Happily, the Spirit of God in writing these chapters has interpreted its mysteries for us. For the most part, we don't need to guess at what these visions mean, what they represent. Let me read the first six verses. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Better glasses. Ah, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. 
I would think so. So what do we learn about this woman in the first six verses? First, she's portrayed as a harlot. We should not confuse this harlotry with the manner in which God refers to the adultery, the unfaithfulness of Israel's idolatry in the Old Testament. Their, their idolatry, or adultery and harlotry was used as a metaphor for their unfaithfulness to Him, not obeying Him. For these nations, these nations and their rulers are not Jews, neither are they the redeemed. These are never pictured as God's or the Messiah's wife. So they can't be adulterous to Him. No, this is pure harlotry. It's pure fornication, whatever. She sits on many waters. This is explained in verse 15. Quote, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. End quote. In other words, her scope and influence is worldwide. She speaks all languages. She covers everybody. Then, as with human prostitutes, where the man may think he is using the woman, in truth she is changing him. This harlot, shall we say, services the kings of the earth. But in turn, they are corrupted. The text says, made drunk with the wine of her immorality, corrupted by her, and eventually ruled by her. She is the one in ultimate control. The people will be passionately intoxicated with Antichrist's illicit false world religion. Then we see that she sits on a scarlet beast, which by its description in verse 3 and later is clearly Antichrist, the beast. Or more accurately, the beast is not just Antichrist, but as we've seen before in other passages, represents, as Walvard puts it, a revelation of the revived Roman Empire and its period of worldwide dominion. And I'm getting increasingly uncomfortable with the term Roman Empire. Because what do we think of with that? Ah, Rome. We, we have the... It's come back to life. Well, not really. It, it, it's really just a worldwide political system. And it looks sort of like the Roman Empire, and, and there are places in Scripture where it's portrayed as like being like the Roman Empire. But I think it's healthier, it's more clear to just think of it as just a worldwide structure, worldwide government under Antichrist. In any case, Antichrist is the head of that confederation. We can deduce from the vision that the beast... Here's a, a beautiful picture of the harlot and the man. The beast supports the harlot. He's holding her up. He's 
in a in a in a political sense supporting her yet she is the one riding him she is the one controlling him she has the reins the sometimes tortured intricacies of their relationship the political dictator on one hand with the worldwide religion on the other is described in verse 16 god's word can be very very flavorful at times and the 10 horns which you saw and the beast these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. In this we see the apostasy and the dictator in the beginning working side by side, supporting each other. But later, perhaps at the midpoint of the tribulation, more on this later, Antichrist will make himself the object of the world's worship, thus subsuming the two into one in the beast's universal and comprehensive rule. The description of the beast is telling. He is vile, full of blasphemous names, which at the same time reveals the depths of depravity of the apostate church being in such intimate alliance with him. Both are vile. They're a good match for each other. Once the true church is removed at the rapture, this hideous abomination will be the worldwide church taking its place. The seven heads represent seven successive kingdoms or governments, and the ten horns represent the coalition under the beast. The harlot's apparel is telling as well. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Verse 4. We might say today that those are power adornments. The colors speak of royalty, nobility, and wealth, as does the abundance of expensive jewelry. This false religion has immense power and wealth. In place of a royal orb, she holds in her hand, as if proud of it, a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Verse 2 told us that she does what she does with this cup. Those who dwell on the earth, that is, unbelievers, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, always refers to unbelievers, the unredeemed. They were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of this. Turn please to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 6 to 7. Flee from the midst of Babylon, let everyone save his life. 
Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. Three payment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Did I not say this is happening today? Now, I need to insert a sidebar here. Just a word about the Catholic Church. We must carefully and intelligently understand the meaning behind this vision of a woman and what she represents by her names, harlot and Babylon. It's intricate. It's confusing. But we need to understand it. And I've taken quite... A lot will take a, quite a bit of time in this session so that we can understand it. Many, perhaps even a majority, over the centuries have claimed flat out that Babylon and this abominable harlot represent the Catholic Church with its corrupt papacy. That is standard. I have turned to so many commentators say, oh, okay, I just need another voice here. Give me another voice. And I look and I, well, they go off, there are go off pages and pages about the Catholic Church. Okay, fine. This passage is one they reference to back up their position, one of many, claiming that the garb of this woman stands for the grandiose and richly adorned robes of the papacy. As I've stated repeatedly, we do not subscribe to an historical interpretation of these visions. They are not talking about something back in history. They are not talking about some political leader that was particularly heinous, like Hitler or, or uh, Lenin or Stalin. No. They are future. Nor does the apostasy of the end times represent, represent any apostasy in the Catholic Church. Is there error and apostasy there? Yes. Yes, of course. Just as apostasy can be found in some Protestant churches, more by the day. But in this vision of an end times false religion, a picture of an end times Catholic Church? No. John Walvard says it well, the only form of a world church recognized in the Bible is this apostate world church destined to come into power after the true church has been raptured. Just as I pointed out that we can see today in our culture examples of what we read here, that does not mean that we are already dwelling in the fulfillment of this prophecy. Sin and rebellion against the true God have been dwelling on the earth since Eden. Now next, the woman has a rather verbose identification on her forehead. This is, this is perfectly normal. In, in Roman times, in ancient Roman times, prostitutes would have their name on their forehead. Probably a band with their name on it so they could be identified. So it's normal that she'd have her name on her forehead. Of course, what the band says is pretty weird. It's not a mystery 
Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I'm guessing the most Roman prostitutes were not called by that. Who or whatever she is, we can take from this that she is rather proud of what she is. Some say the word mystery is part of the title. Some versions present it that way. If your Bible has the whole thing in caps, then it includes mystery in caps. Others, like the NASB, do not. The right ones. Just kidding. So, in, in the NASB and a, and a few others, it's a descriptive adjective, not part of the name or title. It's a small point. It just means that this is a secret that will be revealed. Now, as I said, I want to spend more time on just what this name Babylon means or represents. As to the name Babylon, Walvert helps us. He writes, Babylon in Scripture is the name for a great system of religious error. Babylon is actually a counterfeit or pseudo-religion which plagued Israel in the Old Testament as well as the church in the New Testament, and which, subsequent to apostolic days, has had a tremendous influence in moving the church from biblical simplicity to apostate confusion. Amen. He continues, in keeping with the satanic principle of offering a poor substitute for God's perfect plan, Babylon is the source of counterfeit religion, sometimes in the form of pseudo-Christianity, sometimes in the form of pagan religion. Now, as always, the handout distributed this morning It's just supplemental to what we're discussing today. It's just more information that I couldn't take time for. He goes into much greater detail, Walvard does, on what Babylon means. It's very helpful. Do take the time to read it. Joseph Seiss brings out an important point about verse 5, which speaks to the identity of this woman in John's vision. And I like this. To those who would try to make this all about Rome or the Catholic Church or the papacy itself, Seiss raises his hand in protest and says, No, no, no. Look again at verse 5. So note again what verse 5 says about the name on her forehead. Her name is a mystery. That's first. That's a mystery. Whether it's part of the title or just a descriptive adjective, it's a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. As Walvard points out, it is a mystery. Not here, in chapter 17, a literal inhabited city. Not here. Sice agrees, but comes at it by emphasizing what the text in verse 5 is saying. That this woman is the mother of all harlots and the mother of all the abominations of the earth. Let that sink in. Put that in context. That's what Seiss does. Were we to place her on a timeline, she would predate by millennia Rome and the papacy. 
She predates all harlotry and all the abominations of this fallen earth. She's the one who gave birth to it all. Thus she is all false religion, all apostasy, all depravity and rebellion against a holy God. As exemplified by a Babylon that had its birth in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Seiss continues writing this, The woman is not an empire any more than the Church of Christ is an empire. She rides upon empires, kings and powers of the world, and inspires, leads, and controls them. But she herself is not one of them, and is above all of them, so that they court her, and are bewitched and governed by her. Governed not with the reins of empire, but with the lure of her fornication. This woman is longer lived than any one empire. That's Joseph's size. Finally, in verse 2, it is the unbelievers who are made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Here in verse 6, the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. False religion has always been a murderer. It takes life rather than gives it. Christ Jesus, true God, offers life. Life eternal. False religion in all forms offers only false salvation false hope, and an eternity of misery and living death. Those fooled by Babylon's apostasy are made drunk by her enticements. Meanwhile, she herself is made pleasantly drunk from the deaths of all those who rejected her suit in favor of the true Messiah. Remember what we read in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 15. And it was given to the false prophet to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Although the text expresses great astonishment, I still read the end of verse 6. When I saw her, I wondered greatly as profound understatement. Frankly, I believe that any one of us would faint dead away seeing this vision in front of us. And the angel assures him, don't, don't worry, John, I'll explain it all. So now the angel explains. Let's read verse 8. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Thank you very much, Angel. That was clear as mud. Wasn't much help, Angel. Thank you. One thing, though, what translation is that? What version is it? NASB? 
But let me read a por- that middle part and see if yours agrees with it, because you flipped something there. Uh, and those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life. Is that how yours reads? Okay, when you read it out loud, you flipped it. So you stuck something in there. So uh, you're forgiven. Uh, So that those who dwell on the earth, comma, whose name has not, not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the Word, they will wonder when they see the beast. That's how it reads. Huh? Mar- Marvel just Marvel just just uh, is just another way of saying we'll wonder. Okay, maybe I heard it wrong. No editorializing, please. My feelings are fragile enough as it is. Okay, verse 8. We'd better dig in. The beast that you saw was... Okay, once is enough. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. There you go. Now we understand it. The remainder of chapter 17 consists of the angel's explanation of this bizarre sight. It's queued up by John's wonderment in verse 6. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. But there again, note, words are important. Note what it says. When I saw her. Yet the angel describes everything else but the woman for the next 11 verses. Only in the last verse, 18, does he get to the woman. And then in a rather offhanded manner. Oh yeah, by the way, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So, let's do this in bullet point fashion. The beast that you saw, that's Antichrist, the beast from the sea, was, that is, he was alive, people knew of him, and is not. Now, again, I I swear one of these days, I'm I'm just going to, Along with that, we're going to put a sign here. Opinions vary. So that I don't have to keep repeating it. Opinions vary on what this means. And is not. My position is he faked his death. He is not. He faked his death so that he could be resurrected and be worshipped as God. So he was. People knew he was there. He faked his death to make him look so that he could raise himself up. I'm God. See, I was raised from the dead. And is about to come up out of the abyss. Which could be referencing his public re-emergence after his death. Death. Or be a reference to 13.1 where he is seen coming up out of the sea. And, And we, when we discuss that, we took that to mean that was his kind of the midpoint. That's when he was really coming into power. Or a reference to 11, chapter 11, verse 7, where he is the beast that comes up out of the abyss. As we discussed in session 27, the two witnesses, 
In the Old Testament, a correlation is expressed metaphorically between the sea and the realm of satanic activity. As, for example, in Isaiah 27.1, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. As MacArthur points out, the abyss is the prison for certain demons. Though he is a man, the beast is energized by the demonic presence and power coming from the abyss. Now we're going to move right along here through these verses. Verses 9 to 13, these, these verses expand on what we already know. That the seven heads represent seven earlier successive kingdoms or governments. The ten horns represent the coalition under the beast. Verse 14. Have you ever seen me go so fast through 9, 10, 11, 12, 13? Wow. Verse 14. Here is a compacted version of Armageddon. All these just described, the coalition under Antichrist, all will go to war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will win. Why? Because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Sorry to spoil the ending for you, but God wins. Now, we're going to spend a little more time with verse 16. A study of the future history of the end times can be, and is usually, Fascinating, but at times it can also be frustrating. For we wish the Spirit of God would have dispensed with all the mystic, opaque language and just give us the detailed, plain English, minute-by-minute account that could be easily understood. I could be home right now taking a nap with my kids. Which I will be in about 40 minutes. Verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. We've already seen from other passages how Antichrist will initially be most agreeable with religion. At the beginning of the tribulation period, He will make an agreement with the Jews to permit them to worship as they see fit in a Jerusalem temple. We've discussed that in the past. And he will probably do the same. It'll be the same deal with this worldwide religion, this false religion. So in the beginning, for about three and a half years, he's going to be real chummy with the religion, with the religious of the world. Let the Jews go back to worship in their temple, in this new temple. And and let the religion, the spiritualism flow, and, and he uses it. But then somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, he'll renege on that agreement and begin his active persecution of Israel. 
Now, what? So we have discussed that in the past that Antichrist will double cross the Jews, kick them out of the temple, and install himself. What we didn't know, what we haven't discussed until now, is that he's going to also do that to the worldwide false religion. Babylon, the great harlot. This text tells us that he will do much the same with the harlot, called in these two chapters Babylon. This is not Judaism, but a continuing and greatly expanded system of false religion and gross apostasy. During the first half of the tribulation, this will be the church. And it will be a travesty. This will be the replacement for the true church raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. This verse describes in the same obtuse prophetic imagery that opened the chapter that the beast and his ten-nation coalition will suddenly destroy this perverse religion. It served them well by being the carrot that attracted the masses to the beast, organizing them, subjugating them. But it's now time to dispense with it. Why? Does he want to replace it with a true religion? <laughs> Probably not. No, he wants to replace it with himself. He will be the God. From here on out, he, the beast, will be the object of veneration and worship, and no one else. From here on out, he will be God. But we must never forget that there's only one causing all this to happen. Satan? Yes, to a point. But over and above all else, there is holy God calling the shots. Look at verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose, God's purpose, by having a common purpose. So, let me pause there. Here's where those pronouns, you've got to watch them. And I, any version of God's Word that doesn't capitalize the deity, you're in trouble on this verse. For God, the real God, has put it in their hearts, the coalition, those in charge, unredeemed, to execute His, God's purpose, by having a common purpose. They're of like mind. We're going to do this. And by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. We may not understand all this. We may, we may wonder, why are you doing this, God? We expect Him to just, just reign. Just, just bring righteousness upon the earth. Well, He is reigning. This is what He's doing when He reigns. Somehow, in His economy, this will bring glory to God. And we must simply place our trust in that. Throughout this study, every time 
I mean, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. All this going on, we've already looked at what the first five bowls are doing. It's hideous. It's terrible. That's from heaven. God's doing that. What better way to rid the earth of the hideous great harlot than to have Antichrist himself do all the dirty work? It's his purpose, God's purpose, to have the coalition unite under what they see as their purpose. To wit, to unite as one under the rule of the beast without any distracting religious affections then to him alone. You're our guy. You're our God. The beast will be their God. He will be their church. He will be their all in all. That's kind of sad, isn't it? I just just read that. And it... Antichrist will be their all in all. That is, until the words of God, the true God, will be fulfilled. Verse 18 serves as a suitable segue into chapter 18. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, in this session, aside from a brief mention at the top, I've purposely restricted our focus to Babylon as standing for the pervasive system of immorality and apostasy that has infected mankind since the beginning of man's time on earth. She is and always has been, as the words on her forehead proudly proclaim, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. She is the insidious monster infecting our churches even today with false religion, false promises, false hope, all bringing only death to those who listen to her siren song. I've kept us focused on that aspect of Babylon so as to make it easier for us to grasp what can be a mysterious, mystic, mystical, slippery concept. Now in our next session, We'll turn the page to chapter 18. And Babylon Babylon has something more concrete, more tangible. Still immoral, still perverse. Still hateful to a holy God. But now instead of religion, she will represent commerce, trade, politics. As such, most scholars agree that Babylon in chapter 18 does speak of a literal city. Or location, at least. Just where? Well, on that few do agree. Commentators have it all over the place. It may have a name we don't even know about. But whatever it is, it represents it is represented by babylon the great harlot 
we've placed the prophecy of chapter 17 somewhere around the mid-tribulation point and before. Because near the end of 17 is when they strip her and burn her and get rid of her. That would be at the mid-tribulation point. We will place chapter 18 somewhere closer to the very end of the tribulation, the great tribulation. Stay tuned. And once again, if you were not here last week and you care to keep stay on track with the, with the flow of this timeline, then please, our last session was very important on Daniel 11. Go to my website and get the notes. The charts are included in the notes. Father God, John was mystified seeing this woman sitting on a red scarlet beast. And at times we confess we are mystified by Your Word. We need Your help. We pray that Your Spirit would minister to everyone in this room and help us all to understand what You are telling us in these odd passages of Your Word. We trust in You. We trust You to help us as You help us in so many other things. We want to learn it correctly. And we can only do that with Your Spirit translating for us, ministering to us. And we thank You for Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.